I don't understand why we're always lopsided. <laughs> this side of the room is empty almost, and the side's full. Must mean something. I, I'd like to talk with you tonight about uh, a topic that's really very dear to me. <clears throat> Something I have been fascinated with for years and years, and that is the distinction between concepts and reality. It's kind of the crux of the matter in, the, in our practice. The distinction between concepts and reality. I've had um, the good fortune, and I say good fortune now, but at the, sometimes in the moment it doesn't feel like good fortune so much, but a number of occasions in my life to be confronted uh, eyeball to eyeball with the difference between concepts and reality. And uh, they're wonderful experiences, but they, they often are somewhat shocking when they happen suddenly. This quote from uh, the great Tibetan meditation teacher Kalu Rinpoche really says it all. He writes, You live in illusion and the appearance of things. It's quite a statement. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. <laughs> I feel like saying, thank you very much. <laughs> what does it mean? What is he saying here? He's saying essentially that we live in a world of concepts a good deal of the time, and that uh, these concepts that are so close to us and so conditioned into ourselves determine a lot of the quality of our lives, how we live. And it's really a good thing to begin to distinguish between thought, concept, and the reality of the living body, the reality of the moments-by-moment -moment experience. I think back on um, 
uh, an experience that uh, came my way many years ago. I find as I get older, these experiences are further and further in the past. <laughs> Those are the ones I remember. <laughs> it's true what they say. I can imagine I'd be up here 80 and I'll go, I remember riding my tricycle. In 1975, um, the second summer that Naropa Institute uh, was functioning, and uh, Chogim Trungpa was there, and and Jack Cornfield was there, and Joseph Goldstein were there, and and I was teaching in the Department of Psychology Gestalt Therapy. And um, I was very excited about this. I'd been a Gestalt therapist for a number of years, so it wasn't like, you know, I didn't feel prepared. But I had only been working in, during my whole career with groups of no more than 20. And that's sort of standard in Gestalt circles, literally circles. So the day of my first class, at Naropa, I didn't really know what to expect, and I kind of innocently wandered into the building where the classroom was and looked on the bulletin board in room 202. I opened the door to room 202, and it was an auditorium full of people. There were about 250 people in there, and then there, and there was a stage. Yes. So I um, immediately dissociated. <laughs> Truly. It's, a wonder, it's amazing the powers that we have to take care of ourselves. Yeah. Otherwise I would have fainted probably. Because uh, I had a very, very um, troublesome fear of public speaking. And, um, you know, they say that the fear of public speaking is worse than the fear of death, actually. And I do believe it. <laughs> so in that dissociated state, I walk down the aisle and I walk up on the stage and, and uh, maneuver my body into the chair that was sitting there. It was like being a, 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 a one-man show, you know, and um, without a script. And um, I'm sitting there, my mind is blank. And, uh, well, okay, people are watching, waiting, (laughs) do something. So I said, I hear the air conditioner. (laughs) I feel my back against the chair sensations of pressure. Oh, and I hear my voice. By this time, everybody's looking at me. Who is this weird guy? But I couldn't stop because it was the only thing that I could, that I knew. I I literally didn't know anything, truly. Feel my feet. Oh, my feet are buzzing. (laughs) 
one point I said, and this went on quite a long time, and at one point I said, I'm thirsty, and, s- and someone brought a Coke up and put it next to my chair, and I thought, I'm okay now. <laughs> I had so many concepts going in there, con- conscious and unconscious, about what it was to teach a Gestalt therapy class, and how to do it from my past, and everything was altered the minute I (laughs) walked in the door, and my mind stopped. And what came back was reality. Because when I said, I hear the air conditioner, that's all that was happening. (laughs) It was a very wonderful lesson in the difference between concepts and reality. An interviewer once asked Thich Nhat Hanh his impressions of Western society. <laughs> and he paused for a while. And he looked up and he said, lost in thought. I think that accurately describes our fascination and our attachments to our, our concepts. And so much of that attachment is so close to us and so every moment here that uh, we don't really see the forest for the trees. Occasionally we do, and moments like I just described, and those are moments of waking up, actually. So what are these concepts that run our lives so, so powerfully? There are many. One of them is the concept of ownership. It seems to be related to how close something is to us. Physically, if something's really close to us, we assume that we own it. Can you imagine walking in the hall some afternoon and have you look up and someone else is sitting on your zafu? Hmm? It's your zafu and it's your place. (laughs) You would be offended, you know. We develop this sense of owning. My cat, my my notebook, my house. When actually, it's impossible to own every anything. Everything just simply exists, comes into being here, all interrelated all coming into being simultaneously. Nothing owns anyone or anything here. Another concept that really is very important to us is the concept of time. Do you ever think about what the future is or what's the past? We sit and thoughts come Plans, plans, plans. We have thoughts arising in the moment about something that we project out ahead of us and call it the future. But the, but the, the thought, the thinking is happening in the moment. The same with the past. We project impressions and, and thoughts into the past and call it what happened back there sometime. But the actual process happens in present time. Or my life 
is run by the clock. Much of my day is spent hour by hour in, in uh, therapy appointments. One o'clock, mm-hmm, two o'clock, scene changes. Three o'clock, scene changes again. Different person comes in, sits down, we talk, gets up and leaves. It all happens by the clock, and yet that division into time, hour by hour, is totally man-made. It's an idea, it's a concept that we place on the flow of events, the flow of experience. Concept of time, how important it is to us. Another one that's really close that we barely notice is the concept of place. When I first heard anyone talk about this, it was Joseph Goldstein. He has a talk that I love to hear on uh, concepts and reality, and he usually tells this story in regard to place. Back in the days when uh, these migrating hippies were crossing overland into India, which John was one here. There was a friend of Joseph's who was traveling overland and came to uh, a vast desert, very uh, bleak place, nothing in sight. And, and, and down through the center of it, there was a dry creek bed. And over the creek bed was a metal bridge. One side was painted red, and one side was painted green. And in the center was a big iron door with bars. There were soldiers in one color uniform on one side of the bridge, the red one, and soldiers in uniform on the other side. In order to cross over the bridge, you had to present your papers to one soldier, and he presented them to the other soldier, and if the papers were in order, they opened the gate and you walked through (laughs) in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) crossing a border. Concept of place, totally constructed out of the mind. When you think of it, the earth doesn't have lines on it that delineate California. Or borders between France and Germany. And yet, look how much energy and how much attention in history has gone into maintaining those boundaries, those borders. And how many wars have been fought and people suffered and how many people lost their lives defending ideologies that lived on one side of the line and not on the other side of the line. People kill each other over these things. These concepts are so powerful, and our belief in their reality is so strong. It's mind-boggling, really. So much of our human history has been determined by belief and clinging to certain ideas, certain concepts. 
Another one is the concept of function, duty. Remember, I was introduced to that concept when uh, I was a, a young intern having I'd finished medical school and I was interning in a large hospital in Salt Lake City and uh, <clears throat> I had my white suit on and I had I'd been introduced to the um, the glamour of the or the romance of being a physician very early in my life in fact when I was still in the womb my father decided that I was to be a doctor and that's what happened and when I was 15, I was apprenticed to uh, the local doctor who was also a very good surgeon and had a small hospital. So when I was 15, I, uh, he started to teach me surgery. And uh, by the time I was 18, I was doing assistance and some of the surgery myself. And by the time I got into medical school, I could already do take out an appendix and a gallbladder. You know? And, and I was steeped from childhood in the the idea, as well as the, the some of the experience of being a, a physician, a doctor. My internship, I, I wore this white suit really proudly, and I was very much into all the concepts, the the healer the helper, the one who comes in the middle of the night and gives respite from pain, you know, the poetry of it. And um, I was quite full of myself. And very early in my internship, about I was on the duty on the medical service one night, about 3 a.m., the phone rang next to my bed in the intern's quarters, and the nurse on the third floor said, uh, Dr. Hall, you better come right away because uh, the patient in room 302 is, uh, is having difficulty breathing. And, you know, I'm slipping to my white suit, just like Spider-Man, you know. And, it's like, <laughs> and, and I put the stethoscope in my pocket. It's very important that you have the stethoscope. Um, when you get to the room, you take it out of your pocket and put it around your neck. But on the way there, you always carry it in your pocket. <laughs> so I'm 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm stumbling up to the third floor and walk into the room, and I hardly, I'm so full of myself, I hardly know what's going, notice what's going on in the room, but there's a very lovely, very elderly woman in bed there, and she's obviously in respiratory distress. So I start um, doing all my doctor thing, uh, pull it out. I started getting ready to do an IV, and I was calling for for the oxygen tent to, to come up, and et cetera, et cetera. And I was really very busy and doing my. And then I noticed that standing next to her bed was an old man, and that um, he was holding her hand. And unbelievably what I had failed to see was that they were gazing into each other's eyes even while she was in respiratory distress. I found out later they'd been married 50 some years and she was leaving 
And they were saying goodbye. And I'm there with my needles and my stethoscope. And my mind stopped again. And I looked down at all of this paraphernalia and I looked over at what was happening there and my heart opened. And I didn't have to do anything to save the situation because these people were already in love. And so I stood there with them while she passed and he said goodbye. And then afterwards, he came over and put his arm around me and thanked me for being there. The feeling in my heart and my body was so different from all of the ideas that I had when I had entered that room about what was happening there. It passed from a world of concepts to a kind of reality that had profound meaning and really changed my life, changed my ideas about what it is to be a doctor. It was a very important experience for me. One of the most important, and that story illustrates it, one of the most important concepts that we carry with us is the concept, the, the granddaddy of them all, the source of all of the struggle, is the concept of self. The idea that there is someone here to whom everything is happening, that there is a, an utterly separate, utterly independent, utterly alone entity to whom everything is happening. It's an idea. It's the concept that really runs us all. I remember running across that one a number of times too, probably about every other moment every day, but I remember particularly during my very first Vipassana retreat when all of this business of the distinction between experience and thought, concept and reality began to be really very graphically in my face and important to me. It was at my first retreat. It was a 12-day retreat in Cupertino. We're talking 1974, and uh, it was uh, the, there were maybe 20 of us there, something like that. Joseph was teaching, and and uh, Sharon was teaching, and Jack was teaching that retreat. And they were they had just begun teaching vipassana in the United States. They all had just come back from the Far East, and and I was friends with them. And, went to the retreat to kind of check out what it is that they were doing. And um, it, it took place in a, an abandoned high school. This, this room is such a glorious place to be 
those of us who started retreats in the old days, you know, we spent our meditation time under leaky roofs and with mold growing on the floor and uh, no heat. And, and uh, this is splendor. This abandoned high school was a very grim institutional kind of place. Every tile linoleum on the floor, uh, fluorescent lights flickering on and off, um, stainless steel everywhere. And um, the meditation room was the cafeteria. And uh, it was cold. And it just happened to be this time of year in the rainy season, it was pouring rain outside and very cold. And I want to tell you, it was depressing. <laughs> About five days into the thing, we were doing uh, walking meditation, and I think I probably was swimming around in despair at the time. And we used to do the walking in, in that retreat. We, we did the walking meditation in the middle of the cafeteria floor in a circle. We'd line up, we'd get in a circle and just walk around like that, slowly. So we all walked at the same pace. <laughs> well, if you, if you can picture the scene, everybody's got blankets over their heads. You know, and it's like this very gloomy room. And we're mm, mm, lifting, moving, placing around in the circle. Silence. Nobody's looking at anybody. And um, I actually was in f great fear of my sanity. And I peeked out from under my blanket at one point and saw that this was happening. These entities were walking around like that. And I thought, oh my God, these poor people. They're in hell. And then I continued walking, and then it, it dawned on me, oh, I'm here. <laughs> I'm one of them. And the, the, the concept of separate self in an instant f fell away, totally. And my heart opened again, and for the very first time, I knew what compassion was. We were all there together. When the heart opens and there's no self running the show, what's left is love and compassion. It's a wonderful moment. Concept of self. Well, you might be wondering at this point if this is what's steering the, the train here, all these concepts that have no tangible reality, what is going on? <laughs> what is real? And that's a good question. In the Buddhist teachings, in the teachings of the Buddha, he, he has given us very specific information about that. First of all, he said, reality is what can be experienced bodily. And that there are four 
ultimate realities in distinction to the uh, unreality of concepts. There are four ultimate, I love that word, ultimate realities. That means you can count on them. There are four of them. The first are the material elements. Earth, air, fire, water. The elements out of which all of the material world that we inhabit is constructed. The earth element, which is the uh, quality of extension or uh, hardness or softness. You experience it uh, in the body as the sensations of pressure on the bottoms of your feet in walking meditation or on the, in your butt when you're sitting on your cushion. The sensations of hardness and softness are the manifestation of the element of earth in the moment. The other air, the air element, comes to us as the experience of vibration and movement. So when you're sitting and, you've, and you're really paying attention to the sensations of breath and you feel those little, in, in Germany they call them kribblings, kribblings, you feel those little vibratory feelings in your abdomen and your chest, that's the movement of the element of air in your physical, psychophysical being. Then the, the water element is the element that brings fluidity and cohesion. You can think of it as like if you have a, a bowl full of flour, you know, and you shake it or something, it just blows away. But when water is added, it brings everything into form, holds all of the separate parts together. The element of water cohesion makes it all capable of being here, brings all the fragments together. And then there's the element of fire, which we experience as heat, cold, sometimes very sharp pain is the element of fire. Sometimes the earth element is, uh, is what brings pain, aching, dull, aching, and intense pressure. But the element of fire, I first became aware consciously of that element in my second retreat, which was in Mendocino in the forest. It was another one of those Boy Scout, Girl Scout camps with no heat and uh, <laughs> lots of mosquitoes. And uh, in this retreat, um, I was sitting and working very intensely with trying to develop concentration and quiet my mind. And I was really being bothered a lot by uh, a very, uh, about the size of a quarter uh, burning pain over my right shoulder blade. Maybe perhaps you've had little experiences like that during the retreat. 
all of a sudden these things come into being and you've never felt them before, perhaps. You know, where do they come from? This was a very particular burning hot pain. It was like someone had placed a, a hot poker there. It was very, very intense. And I was moaning and groaning and feeling sorry for myself that I had to endure this and, and it didn't go away no matter what I did. And so I finally decided to listen to the teaching and work with it, and use that as the, the object of my attention. So I, I started to do that very diligently, focusing in on fire, fire burning, 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 fire burning, burning. And uh, it, it took a great deal of effort and intention to do that, but at, it's, at one point uh, my, my reality altered considerably, and I was uh, engulfed in flames. This is the experience that I had. I was in flames, everywhere flames. And there was a moment of panic, and uh, death was near, and then this voice <laughs> came into my mind. Thank, thank you for all these voices, you know, they do have a purpose sometimes. And it said, swim. So inside there I started swimming in the flames, and swimming away, and swimming away, and then the, the horror of it turned into ecstasy. And I was, the first time I had ever really experienced an ecstatic state, and it had come from that little quarter-sized burning pain. You know. And it went on for a long time. Well, I left that sitting thinking, well, okay, I've got this thing happening. I know what to do here. And I arrived for the next sitting, and of course you know what happened. I sat down and, okay, I hope that pain is here. <laughs> this is going to be a It was gone. The element of fire. These experiences of the elements are ultimate realities. They're actual. The, the material elements also are uh, accompanied by secondary characteristics, like color, smell, taste. And so that, uh, well, for instance, you walk outside and you see a tree, which is really a composite of various of the elements. A good deal of it is water and uh, earth and fire, probably. And all of the objects, including this one that we're cruising around in, are composed of the movement and the dance of the elements all occurring simultaneously. And from time to time, one or two will be more prominent, and that will determine the kind of experience we have. And you walk outside, you see a tree, and actually your you, you, tree is a concept, you see, getting back to concepts. You, what you actually see is color and form and line. You see green, you see brown, you see line, shape, and we put the word tree on it. I like to think of 
how it's very freeing for me to think of how we don't know what anything is. You know? We call this a cup, just like we call that thing out there a tree, but we don't really know what it actually is. And it's the same way with our, uh, ourselves and our own bodies. It's a great mystery. The concepts, strangely enough, are very static, tend to be frozen, our, our, our concepts in our minds, whereas reality itself is in constant flux and change. One of the, as, as a, I might have mentioned earlier, one of the most important concepts that we live in is the concept of the body itself. Now, if you take a moment and close your eyes, just, just do this little experiment. I think you've probably done it before. And put all of your attention into your right hand. Focus on the experience inside your right hand. It's very likely that what you experience there is vibration, tingling, warmth, what happened to hand? You see, the body is a concept. Hand is a concept. What you actually encounter as reality are the sensations of the elements in that little experiment. The same goes true of your entire body. You do know that the closer you get to this body, and you get closer and closer and you start putting it under an, elect under an electron microscope, it's almost all space. It's almost emptiness. It isn't what it appears to be at all. And that's so of the entire conceptual world that we live in. It's no wonder we walk around with this sense of being in a dream and... Uh, and, and not knowing what reality is, because we so rarely are trained in, a, in, in our upbringing to be attentive to what it is that's actually happening. We get fascinated, in our, and our educational system teaches this, we get fascinated with thinking about what's happening, analyzing it, describing it, trying to communicate it to each other. But very little of our training has to do with learning to actually be in the experience of the living body, you see. Now the second ultimate reality, the first of the elements, the second ultimate reality is consciousness itself. We tend to think of consciousness as a constant uh, flow, a steady, persistent, constant thing. In actuality, consciousness is arising and passing away in each moment. The mind moments are so rapid, the teachings go, that it appears constant, but it's like uh, in the, the movies, you know, what looks like the constant story unfolding on the screen is really a series of stills moving rapidly through the projector. 
in the same way, our consciousness is born into this world, moment to moment. Joseph Goldstein says in his book, 1976, by the way, The Experience of Insight, it's a classic book in the chapter on concepts and reality. He says, the second of the ultimate realities is consciousness. Consciousness is the knowing faculty, that which knows the object. Sometimes people have the idea that in this mind-body there is one consciousness from birth to death. The idea that you're the same person being here from birth to death. One observer who is knowing everything. This idea gives rise to the concept of a permanent self. It occurs when we have not silenced our minds enough to observe the flow of knowing. Consciousness itself is arising and passing away in each instant. There is not one mind which is observing all phenomena. At every instant, mind is created and destroyed. The consciousness that hears is different from the consciousness that sees, or tastes, or smells, or touches, or thinks. There are different mind moments arising in a passing away every instant. When the mind becomes quiet, it is possible to observe this flow of consciousness. Insight into the flow and impermanence of the knowing faculty, the flow and the impermanence of the knowing faculty, understanding that there is not one knower, one observer, but rather an ongoing process at every moment exposes the illusion of a permanent self. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? What that's saying is that what you think you are is not what you are, but what you are is something more like a river that's arriving out of nowhere, out of a world of the unborn and appearing in here in this, this world, instant by instant, and death is occurring moment by moment. How different from the way we actually go around perceiving ourselves. We are like, Joseph goes on in another page, we are like a big moving jigsaw puzzle. The pieces of the puzzle are the material elements, consciousness, and mental factors. When the pieces join together in a certain way, we see man, quotes man, or woman, tree, or house. But that is only the picture of the arranged pieces, the concepts. It is the fundamental elements of mind and body, the underlying energies in constant flow and transformation, which constitute the reality of our experience. The third of the ultimate realities in the, in the Buddhist teachings are called the, the mental factors, qualities of mind that determine the, the, the quality of our experience to great extent. There are three 
wholesome, what's called wholesome mental factors, and three that are unwholesome, so-called. The unwholesome ones are greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, now that, bear in mind these are ultimate realities. Greed in the mind has the quality of grasping. It's, it has the quality of stickiness. It reaches to pull things toward it. Greed in the mind. The quality of love is the quality of letting go with goodwill, of friendship, warmth, acceptance. Delusion, the mental factor delusion, is the, the factor that clouds the mind so that uh, we can't see clearly what's happening. It's like you, when, when uh, delusion is, the mental factor delusion is prominent in our experience, it's like walking into a, a dark room with no light and you start stumbling around over the furniture. And then... Um, you turn on the light and the wholesome mental factor of wisdom comes into the experience. You see, wisdom is the mental factor that allows us to see clearly, brings light into the darkness. The other wholesome mental factors are generosity or not possessiveness, letting go, giving, willingly and with enthusiasm, generosity, and love. Love. The emptiness of grasping, the absence of grasping, the absence of aversion, the absence of, of delusion, the sense of goodwill. Our experience then according to all of this teaching, is uh, really a unique, occurs as a unique combination of the arising of all of these ultimate realities into present time. The arising of the dance of the elements, the arising of consciousness, the knowing, and the arising of certain mental factors that, that paint the whole picture with certain uh, qualities like greed, hatred, delusion, love, kindness, wisdom, generosity. All of these ultimate realities are what we actually experience. The concepts that we get so lost in merely point to the experience. They're never the experience itself. And when you think about it, or <laughs> when you when you when you in your sitting practice, you may have noticed you can't really experience a thought. It's, they're so nebulous, rising. Joseph likes to call them bubbles. They arise out of nowhere like bubbles and pass before your conscious knowing, and then pop and disappear like bubbles. You can't ever really get a hold of a thought. It doesn't have the guts, the oomph. A real experience. But then turn your attention to the ache in your back or the feeling of vibration in your chest. That is, is there's a definite, distinct quality 
to that level of experience. Another thing that uh, a, 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 meta, a metaphor that Joseph likes to use and, and uh, has struck me over the years is so beautiful is the the, uh, the metaphor of the cave in Plato's Republic, where there is this uh, group of people who are in the cave and they're all chained together and they're chained in such a way that they're looking at the wall, the back wall of the cave. And, uh, and back of them uh, is a, a large fire and then there's a whole procession of beings walking along between them and the fire. And so that the people in the cave who are chained there are looking at the shadows of the people walking behind them. And they take that for reality, like we take concepts for reality. And then every once in a while, one of them struggles free and breaks the chain and turns around and sees, oh, it's a whole other picture back there. Sees the actual people walking and has a moment of awakening. Another, another metaphor for the whole situation that I'm describing is um, the Big Dipper. Joseph likes to talk about the Big Dipper. If you go out in the, uh, on a clear night and look at the night sky and, and you look for the Big Dipper, you think, oh, there's the Big Dipper. But actually, there is no such thing as a Big Dipper. There are stars placed in certain ways in space, and we, we call that shape, the Big Dipper. But it has, it, it's become so common that we think of it as a thing up there floating around. You know? I'd like to read to you a poem, one of my poems that really is very much about this whole topic and uh, it's called The Mansion. Uh, the, the word mansion in this poem refers to the, the body-mind, our, so to speak, where we live. And it's a poem that describes the focusing of attention in the sitting practice becoming more and more and more precise as the inward focus sharpens becomes clearer and clearer. In other words, there's a moving from the outside to the inside in this poem. It's a description of that, coming to clarity, coming to a wakeful state. It goes like this. This mansion where we live has many rooms. For most, the favorite hangout is the drama room sometimes called the place of stories. Yesterday's conversations are retold there. The wounds of childhood sleep deeply, then sit up wide-eyed from nightmares, walk into the day, and suffer from the replay, prisoners of the past. The drama room is fine for laughter, too. Neurosis pulling at your sleeve, and doing floppy hat routines, falling on the knees, tap dancing across your screens in search of applause or sympathy. Everybody out to get even with somebody 
or waiting to fall in love. There are seven basic plots that get redone with endless variations just for fun. The next room is where feelings happen, behind the story and just below the mind. All the drama finds its way into the body, pulls it this way, constricts it that. <coughs> every meaningful glance, every jealous moment sends its current through the nerves, transforms itself to impulse, contracts the muscles, and pulls upon the bones. In the feeling room, we pay attention to the pressure of contraction, the connective tissue, making its demand. And that leads us to the sensation room. Life happens in the raw. Opinions belong to drama, and plans are not allowed. Sensations are acknowledged simply as they are. Some are tingling, some are pain. Vibration travels through in waves. Touch recorded like falling rain. No need to make them into something, no story here to tell. Each stands alone and disappears, replaced by what comes next, maybe heat, perhaps cold, tightness, hardness, maybe the sense of presence, familiar and so old. Sensation without drama, presence without history, no story to be told, Sensations move like blinking stars. The body has no form, no familiar shoulders, no arms to make us warm. Only life emerging now, insistent, demanding, and ecstatic, full of movement, abound with power, running behind the eyes and darting out the fingertips, dissolving all identity, becoming isness arriving Buddha nature, the same as birds and song, making toast in the morning, head upon the pillow in the night, walking to the kitchen, turning to the right, whispering to a lover the act of looking and the sight. The mansion is the great one. We who live here are mirage. Only the one who lives is here, smiling when the tea is hot, spreading on the jam, bringing down the laundry and wiping out the cooking pot. How wonderful is this body. How tender is the love. We imagine, we imagine we are separate, but the truth is all above us all around us, below us, and above. I want to close with one very more recent story. A couple mornings ago, concept and experience, concept and reality. A couple of mornings ago, I woke up, for some reason, feeling great sorrow. It, was, it just was a wash in sorrow and uh, came to the first morning sitting and started to work with that as experience. The body and 
turned to became despair, deepened, became really deep despair, something that I haven't felt in a long, long time. And um, out of the darkness of the despair came pictures of a, of a memory from my remote past I hadn't thought of in years and years and years. It was the first time I ever felt despair. I was five, my brother was two. We were in the small hospital where I later became an apprentice, and we were uh, next to the surgical suite, tied down in beds, and we were about to have our, ton our tonsils taken out. But of course, I didn't know that. They came, these people in uniforms, came and took my brother away first and left me alone in the room. And I heard him screaming in the next room, and it really scared me a lot. And then all of a sudden, he stopped screaming, and there was just silence. And I thought, in my five-year-old mind, they've killed him. And then they came for me. And I remember being wheeled, wheeled into the surgical suite and, and lifted onto the table very clearly. And I decided that I would not let this happen. I would fight. And I started to struggle, and the next thing I knew there was an ether, you know, there, there was a thing over my face, and I was breathing something, and I realized I didn't have the strength to save myself. And I remember falling into despair so profound that it's been in my unconscious ever since. So the other morning, all of that came up out of nowhere, out of nowhere. And tears started running down my, my cheeks. And I felt the tears running down, cool, cool, the sensations of coldness. And I really, really went into those sensations of coldness. And pretty soon, joy started bubbling up, you know. And that's what's back of it all. That's what's back of all of the concepts. And in the emptiness out of which all of the elements arise. Last poem. It's about, it's about sorrow. <coughs> Smooth as dandelion feathers. Soft as tropical breezes. Full of sweetness and serenity waiting in the womb of the unborn, never seeking, always available, is the substance of sorrow. I try to sing of enlightenment, try to tell stories of awakening to perpetual truth, shining intuition, but sorrow is the flavor and the taste of experience. When the eyes close, the breath deepens, the hands repose, the river of aliveness in the heart begins to hum its song. Sorrow held and cherished by the shoulders and ribs. Sorrow gently rising in the throat. Sorrow finding its way into that bowl where the heart rests. Our Lady of Sorrows, the Prince of Peace acquainted with sorrow, the feeling of earth's suffering, the waters polluted, the rainforests destroyed by fire, and the body of earth cloaked with smoke and cruelty. We must find something to cherish. Sorrow presents itself. 
waits while distracted minds take notice, then begins the holy work of transforming what is weeping, transforming what is weeping into love for everything that is, simply because it is. And so are we. Uh, sometimes I think I'm a drama freak. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs>